Well, if you've got a Bible with you, I want you to go ahead and turn over to the book of Matthew, chapter number 27. And while you're turning there, uh, we've been doing a series on the cross. And, and uh, last week, I, I talked about famous last words. And, and what we're doing at this time is, is we're examining the last words of Jesus before his death on the cross. Now, last week, we talked about um, the 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 two thieves that were crucified on each side of Jesus, and we talked about what their... Um, what lessons that we could take away from that, how that applies to us personally. We talked about the, the thief's helpless situation. We talked about his remarkable faith. We, we talked about his simple prayer. And, and we talked about his glorious future. And, and all of that happened while they were there being crucified on the cross. And Jesus made the statement, again, one of seven statements that he made uh, before his death on the cross, and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so this morning we're going to look at another statement that Jesus made while he was on the cross. Matthew chapter number 27, we're going to start reading at verse number 45. If you're there, say amen. It says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all of the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eliah, Eliah, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now notice the response of, of some of the people. Some of those who stood there when they heard this said, this man's calling on Elijah. In verse 48, we see a man who looks at Jesus with at least a little bit of sympathy, and he says in verse 48, Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put a reed on it, and offered it to him to drink. Now notice this other group of people that are there at the cross. He says, And the rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. We're thankful that it is alive, it's living, it's powerful, it's truth can set us free. And Lord, I pray that you would take these moments that we have together and that you would cause the word of God to come alive to us. Help us to receive a revelation of the cross. Help us to see our place at the cross. For Lord, surely we were there that day when you were crucified because Lord, we know that when you were on the cross, we were on your mind. And so Lord, we, we praise you, we thank you, and we celebrate you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> amen. Last words are very important. And surely there could be no more significant last words than the words that Jesus himself spoke while he was on the cross. In six hours that Jesus hung on the cross between heaven and earth as the sacrificial lamb of God, he experienced incredible torment. And when you consider all of the physical torment and all of the mental torment and, and all of the spiritual torment, when you look at the cross you were getting a glimpse into hell itself. Jesus went through hell while he was hanging on the cross, and we know, according to Scripture, that he actually hung on the cross for six hours. 
Now, throughout his lifetime, Jesus suffered many things. We know that Jesus suffered at the hands of men. We know there was times when Jesus suffered at the hands of Satan. We know there were times when Jesus suffered at the hands of others. But, but what's unique at, at this specific time is that Jesus is now about to suffer at the hands of God. He suffered through the hands of men, through the hands of Satan. He's also suffered at the hands of God. But during this time, while he was on the cross, Jesus made seven statements that are actually his last words before his death on the cross. And those seven statements give us a glimpse into the heart of God because what the cross is truly all about, the cross is about taking a journey into the heart of God. Now, we're going to look at one of these statements that he made that's found in Matthew chapter number 27. And and we're going to begin to to break this down and, and see what it has to say to us. So what we see here in Matthew 27, 46... Jesus makes the statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, that's an incredible question. You know, some people say that, you know, you're not supposed to question God. Never question God. Now, I don't know where they got that statement from, and, and I don't know where they, they got that theology from, but they, if they read the Bible, they surely didn't get it from the Bible because the Bible's full of questions. 3,194 to be exact. Many of those questions Jesus himself asked while he was hanging on the cross. And if you live long enough, you're going to find out there's going to be some things that happen in your life that, that don't make sense. There's going to be times when it appears that your world is falling apart. There's going to be times when, when, when you don't understand why things happen. There's going to be times when you can't figure out where God is and why God's not answering and why God is silent and, and why God's presence is, is not as strong in your life as it once was. You're going to have a lot of questions. And some of those questions, they're never going to find answers to on this side of eternity. Life is full of questions, but heaven is full of answers. And so Jesus asks this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, when you break down these five verses that we just read right then, there's four things I want to share with you that are in your outline. I'm really excited about sharing this with you because as I was studying this, my heart was just, it was pounding. It was was overwhelming. There were things that I saw that I'd never seen before. There's things that that the way that I looked at the story and the way that I looked at these events that, that I'd never seen before. And that's what I love about the Bible, that, that you know, it doesn't matter how many times that you read it, it doesn't matter how many times you, you study it, because the Word of God is alive, there's something you can take away from every single word and every single story that can apply to your life. And not just apply to your life, it can actually change your life. Now, there's four things I want to share with you This morning, and the first thing I want to share with you concerning this text is the wonder of darkness. The wonder of darkness. Now, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, that while Jesus was on the cross, darkness covered the entire earth. Now, according to Jewish custom, the new day began at 6 a.m., And so when the scripture says that Jesus was crucified, 
in the third hour, we understand that to be 9 a.m., right? And so for three hours, according to Scripture, Jesus hung on the cross while the sun was still shining. Now, the Bible says about the sixth hour, which we could understand to be 12 p.m. or 12 noon or high noon, whatever you want to call it, something happened. Something took place about the sixth hour. Something happened right in the middle of the day. And the Bible says in the middle of the day that darkness covered the entire earth. At high noon, the world had become dark. Up to this point, there had been three hours of daylight, three hours that the sun was shining. Now, at this time, at 12 p.m., at high noon, the earth would actually experience three hours of darkness. The Bible says that, that this was not something that could be explained through a scientific theory. This was not a, an eclipse of, of the sun. The Bible says the sun actually darkened. It says the entire land was completely and totally dark. The Bible says that this particular event, this that happened in, in, here in, in the Scripture, was a supernatural act of God. But the question is, what does the darkness mean? What does the darkness represent? Now, darkness has always been associated with the judgment of God when you look in Scripture. Darkness has always been associated with the judgment of God. When God was judging Egypt in Exodus chapter number 10... Now, this is something I want you to, to hear what I'm saying because the Bible, the validity of the Bible, the, the, the absolute truth of the Bible, the prophetic fulfillment of the Bible is really amazing. When you see the, the, the prophecy, the prediction, the, the types, the shadows, the symbols, the things that, that you read in the Old Testament, the Scripture says are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So when God is judging Egypt in Acts chapter number, or, uh, Exodus chapter number 10, the Bible says that the last plague, there were 10 plagues, but the last plague before the Passover took place was a plague of darkness. And the Bible says that, that all of Egypt was dark for three straight days. And the darkness was so great that the darkness could be felt. That's, that's what the scripture says. And, and listen, it, it was dark in Egypt for, for three days. And now, in Matthew chapter 27, right before the Passover, right before Jesus, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God was slain, now we see that darkness has covered the earth again, this time for three hours. What was happening to Jesus at this time? Jesus was being judged for the sins of the world. Are, are, are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? I don't want to talk too fast. I, I want to be able to explain this to you so that you can see it because it's incredible. So what happens, Jesus as being judged for my sin. Jesus is being judged for your sin. And now again, just like in the book of Exodus, darkness by a supernatural act is covering the entire earth this time for three hours. 
But there's other places in Scripture that teach us that darkness and, and, and is associated with the judgment of God. When you read the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number 16, when the angel pours out one of the end-time judgments, one of the end-time judgments in, in Revelation 16 is the earth again is covered in darkness. The beast is being judged and darkness is covering the earth again. And, and also, when, when Jesus talked about the, the final judgment, the, Jesus talked about the, 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 the eternal judgment, the destination for unbelievers, the destination for those who die without Christ, those who have rejected the gospel, those that have heard but they had procrastinated, those that felt convicted but, but they quench the Spirit. Those that refuse to respond to God calling them to a place of repentance, Jesus said this three times. He said, They shall be cast into outer darkness where there'll be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. I mean, it's a wonder. You know, it, it's, it's significant that we understand that and that we're able to tie that to the judgment of God because that's actually what's happening. And so when Jesus is on the cross and darkness is covering the earth, Jesus became legally guilty for our sins. Therefore, he was judged and darkness covered the earth. Now, I think it's also significant that the light did not return until after Jesus had died. Light did not return until after Jesus had died. So in this story, we see that, that there's the wonder of darkness. Now, here's the second thing. And the second thing is the wonder of the question. Number one is the wonder of darkness. Number two is the wonder of the question. Now, here are some of the last words Jesus would ever speak. And these words carry uh, significance because of the person who is saying them. And what are these words? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what blows my mind is that at this particular time, and again, I had not really compared and contrasted the, the two different places, you know, what a contrast in Jesus' life at this point based upon other previous experiences that he had with his father. Previously, Jesus had never prayed a prayer that his, son, that, that his father didn't hear. Previously, Jesus never prayed a prayer that heaven did not answer. And so Jesus had always had the presence and, and, and the power and, and, and the spirit of the Father with him at all times. And when you compare Gethsemane with Calvary, there's a vast difference. In Gethsemane, Jesus has a God who is with him. At Calvary, Jesus has a God that abandons him. At Gethsemane, Jesus has a God who strengthens him. On the cross, he has a God who is punishing him. In Gethsemane, the son is tempted to forsake the father. At the cross, the father forsook 
the Son. And so there's a complete opposite contrast to everything Jesus had experienced up to this moment in his life. And all of a sudden, everything that Jesus held dear to him, everything that Jesus had, had, that had brought joy into his life, everything that, that Jesus had found his security in is stripped away Even the acceptance, the presence, and the voice of the Father has now completely left him. And there he says these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean to be forsaken? You think about a wife that's been forsaken by her husband. You you, you think of a child being forsaken by their parents. You think about a father that has forsaken a child, and now we see that God the Father has forsaken Jesus at the most important time of his life. He prays, but there is no answer. Now, there's a question that's been asked many, many times that I think it's worthy of of us discussing this morning. Now, I want you to hear me very, very clear. This will be very helpful to you because I'm sure that there's some of you that are here this morning that you struggle being able to receive the God of the Old Testament and and understanding in the God of the New Testament. Or There's a lot of people that believe that, that God in the Old Testament is the angry God and the God of the New Testament is the loving God. But the truth is... There's only one God. You know, the God in the Old Testament and the God in the New Testament, he, he, he is the same person. And so the question would be this, and I've had this asked many, many times. When Jesus died on the cross, did Jesus only die as a man or did Jesus die as God? Did Jesus only die as a man when he was on the cross? Was he only a man? Or was Jesus God? Or which, which way did he, did he die strictly in his humanity? Or did he die in his deity? The question, can God die? I mean, what actually happened? You know, it, it, is, it, is, it is an enigma. It's, it's, it's a paradox. It's, it, it's, it's, it's two separate worlds. It's the same world. It's two separate people. It's the same. Which one is it? It's important that, that you grasp this because I've heard people say, you know what, I can, I can relate to God, but it's hard for me to believe that Jesus is God. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus being God has everything to do with your salvation, so it's important that you get that straight. So did Jesus die only as a man on the cross, or did he die as God? The answer to that question is both. He is the God-man. He's not a good man. He's the God-man. Jesus died both as God and as man. Now, why is that important? The reason that's important is if Jesus had only been a man then Jesus ceases to be God. And if Jesus ceases to be God, then Jesus cannot save. And on the other hand, when you consider it, a God that cannot suffer is a God that cannot love. A God that cannot suffer is a God that that cannot love. And so what we have on the cross is a God who suffers, and a God 
who cannot suffer is a God that cannot love. Now listen to this. God wills to suffer because God wills to love. Isn't that beautiful? God wills to suffer because God wills to love. And the truth is, only a suffering God can help you and I. A God that does not suffer or cannot suffer, cannot help you, and cannot help me. So Jesus dying as the God-man, Jesus dying as God and as man, understands what it's like to relate to us as a man, but he also is God enough to do something about the situation that we're in. What was God's answer to a suffering world? A suffering Savior. So so that's what we're seeing on the cross here. Now, here's something else I want to, to point out. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, it'd be very easy for us to view God the Father as the angry God, And Jesus, God the Son, as the loving Son. I want you to write this down. Jesus did not die to make God the Father loving. Jesus did not die to make God the Father loving. Because the Scripture says that God loved us from the foundation of the world. How do we know that that's true? How do we know that the Father is loving? But it appears to be that God is not loving at all. And it appears to be on the cross that he's not acting very fatherly either. Are you with me? So, so how do we know that? Well, everybody's favorite scripture, John three sixteen: For God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten what? That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so Jesus didn't die to make God the Father loving. He loved us from the foundation of the world. Now here's what what I, I, I hope that I can communicate to you. Now listen to this. On the cross, both the will of the Father and the will of the Son come into agreement. Okay? On the cross, the will of the Father, the will of the Son comes into agreement. Well, what was the will of the Father? What we see here is the perfect act of self-sacrificing love. Both God the Father and God the Son equally sacrificed on the cross. Are you with me? Is this too heavy? Can you handle it? That's what's happening. I don't want you to be confused about this. That's why I'm trying to make sure that that I'm communicating it effectively. So the will of the Father, the will of the Son, meet into agreement in the perfect act of self-sacrificing love. Both the Father and the Son sacrificed equally. And so here's how they sacrificed equally, okay? They sacrificed equally because, number one, God the Father, it was His will to send His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. That was the will of God, right? Now, the will of the Son, Jesus, or God the Son, Jesus, was in equal agreement with the Father because He said to the Father, I am willing to become that sacrifice. Are you getting that? 
It was the Father's will to send His Son. It was the Son's will to go to the cross. He said it has to be this way. There is no other option. Because if Jesus is just a good man and not a God, the God-man, then salvation can't happen. It's not possible for a good man to die. And if it were possible for a good man to die, then, then the only option would be one good man dying could only save one good man or one bad person who's dying. But Jesus wasn't a good man. Jesus was the God-man. And th therefore, the Bible says that, that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So the will of the Father and the will of the Son come into agreement in, in the perfect act of self-sacrificing love. And so they both, they both sacrifice in equal. Now, 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 you might be asking, how did the Father suffer equally with the Son? Now, those of you that have children would, will understand this. If your son was the one dying on the cross, your son wouldn't be the only person that was dying. You with me? If your son or your child was the one that was dying, then... They wouldn't be the only one that was dying. As a matter of fact, that's probably the most horrible thing that I could ever think of that could ever happen to a person that a child die before the father or the mother die. That would be the worst nightmare come true. It happens, unfortunately. But one of these days, God's going to right all of those wrongs. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more tears. Hallelujah. But I would rather die for my child than my child die for me. What a wonderful Savior we have. Isn't that incredible? And so we see Jesus experiencing the physical, the mental, the spiritual torment. And then you see the father that is experiencing that with his son because Jesus said, I and the father are one. So the will of the father, the will of the son, they, they meet together. And nevertheless, even though they're equally sacrificing, nobody forced the Father to suffer, and nobody forced the Son to suffer. Remember what Jesus said? No man takes my life, but I lay it down freely of myself, and I have the power to take it back up again. I mean, can you just, um, I can't even comprehend that kind of love. I mean, again, knowing, because what happened in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son agreed, this is the only way. There were other worlds that God created according to Scripture in the book of Hebrews. You know, he could have done things differently. He didn't have to do what he did. Jesus didn't have to die the way that he did. And we could have all just went to hell. But God the Father chose, I'm going to send my son. And God the Son chose, I will go for my father. God the Father said a perfect sacrifice will have to be made. 
Only God can die for the sins of the world. And Jesus said, I will be that God, for I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It's getting heavy. Let me hold back. But even with the full knowledge that Jesus understood what was going on, he still cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? But even in that statement, and even in the, in the context of being forsaken, abandoned, separated from God, in total darkness, that's what it means to be forsaken. That's why, that's why hell is going to be hell. That's why outer darkness is included in the eternal judgment. Just a complete and total abandonment of God. Even when totally abandoned by God, Jesus still says that my God, you are still my God, even in my forsaken state. Even completely abandoned by you, you are still my God. Even in loneliness, even in rejection, even in fear, even in torture, even in pain, even in suffering, you are still my God. God was still Jesus' Father even while He was being crucified. Now here's the point. The withdrawal of the Father's presence does not mean the withdrawal of the Father's love. Some of you need to understand that because you know what? You're wondering where God is at right now. You're trying to, you're trying to figure out where God is at. You're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to figure out why, why he hasn't showed up or why he hasn't come through and, and why he hasn't worked this thing out and, and why you haven't experienced your miracle just yet, and you're trying to, and, and, and you don't even feel God. You you wish you could feel God. You wish you, you remember moments when you felt close to God. Now you feel completely abandoned, as if God is absent in your life. Listen, there are moments when God is silent, but there's never a moment when God is absent. Hallelujah. And, and so, He still says, "My God." My God, in that there's hope and trust. He still calls God the Father who forsook him, my God. God is still his Father even when he's being crucified. Now let me ask you a question. Do you know what it's like to be crucified? This is part of Scripture that I wish wasn't even there. Okay? This is part of Scripture that Sometimes you kind of wonder if you were better off having not even read it, but the truth is you wouldn't be. Because where was God the Father while Jesus was being crucified? He was right there. And it just appears as if he's not being very fatherly. Now, I struggle with that. Because you know what? I can't say that I've had nails pierced through my hands and feet, but sometimes I would much rather have nails driven through my hands and feet than go through the emotional and mental 
pain that I've had to go through while somebody was nailing me to the cross. Sometimes the Lord just lets you get crucified. Now, you ready for this? Have you ever prayed to become like Jesus? You need to be careful what you ask for. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I'm going through, and again, I'm not saying what I've been through is worse than what you've been through. I'm just saying, in my personal life, this is the worst thing I've ever been through. I've said it before, but at my deepest moment of pain, when I was crushed, when I was devastated, when I was broken, I remember asking God, God, why did this happen? And the Lord said to me, he said, Donald, I was a man of sorrows. What do you think that means? <laughs> and that's not what I'm looking for out of God. I'm looking for my dad to stretch out his arms and say, come here. But instead of my dad stretching out his arms telling me to come on, he's saying, son, I want you to stretch out your arms. He said, you pray to become like me? This is what I said. Because when you're crushed and broken and devastated, you don't try to pray big fancy prayers. I said, yeah, I'm stupid like that, Lord. I mean, that's what I said. He said, then you don't get to pick and choose which characteristics of me you get to be like. And then he asked me this question that I already knew the answer to, but I don't like to try to apply that to my own life. But yet I was in one of those moments. He said, Donald, where was my father when I was being crucified? He's right there. <laughs> He's right there. But instead of that being comforting to me that was disturbing to me because I was able to kind of in like one little bitty small teeny tiny way understand the thought process that Jesus was going through that knowing his father was there but yet his father is just going to let him get killed. It's heavy, I know. And I'll never forget, the Lord said to me, he said, Donald, can you call God you, uh, your father when you're being crucified? He said, you can if you know your son. Because you know what? Crucifixions always precede resurrections. And so if you're going through a season where you feel like you're being crucified by other people or by circumstances or, or by whatever's going on in your life, let me tell you something. The good news is this. Crucifixions always precede resurrections. And so if, 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 if you're going through a season where you're being crucified, embrace it. Because death is always the gateway to life. The gospel is first you die and then you live. And that's the God that we serve. And so this is what's happening on the cross. Now, here's the third thing. So we see the wonder of darkness. Man, isn't it amazing you find this much stuff out of five verses? It blows my mind. Make you want to say wow backwards. 
Some of you are going. So we see the wonder of darkness, the wonder of the question, and this is devastating, the wonder of silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the first time in Jesus' life where he prayed and the Father did not answer. This is the first time Jesus prayed and heaven was silent. Silence will kill you. That's why when me and Rachel argue and fight, I give her the silent treatment. You know why? Because I'm being godly. Why do you give somebody the silent treatment? Because you love them. Right? And then you justify it by saying, well, at least I'm not punching a hole in the wall. But God is silent. I had to break up the, you know, the intensity of that moment right there. I'm just like, Ooh. And he laughed a little bit, Lord. Like, should, should I laugh? Should I laugh? Like, men or old men? I'm in the car record. I was going home. But anyways, but heaven is silent. Again, you look at the Old Testament. It's an incredible parallel here. 2,000 years ago, to this very moment, God the Father asked Abraham to go sacrifice his only begotten son, Isaac, on a mountain not far from where his son would be sacrificed. And, and here's what the Scripture says. Go ahead and go to the next one. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 12, after God told Abraham to go sacrifice his son, the Bible says that, that Abraham has got the knife and evidently he's reached his back and he's on his way down. And on his way down, God speaks. God intervenes. God says these words to, to Abraham. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy. For now I know that you fear God, since you have withheld, not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, now look at this. Go ahead and go to the next one. Now let's look at the comparisons. We compare Gethsemane with Calvary, okay? Or with the cross. Now we're going to compare Mount Moriah with Mount Calvary and, and, and see the, the, the parallels here, but also the opposite outcomes. So on Mount Moriah, Abraham's son was spared. On Calvary, God's son was slain. On Mount Moriah, God spoke. On Mount Calvary, God was silent. On Mount Moriah, God provided a ram. On Mount Calvary, he, God's son was the lamb. On Mount Moriah, God provided a substitute. On Mount Calvary, God's son was the substitute. You see that? And it kind of gives us some understanding into the question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd been a part of all these historical events because he was God before any of them came to pass. 
He knew God was going to answer. He knew God was going to respond. He knew God was going to make a way. He knew God was going to provide a ram. He knew God wasn't going to require Abraham to, to sacrifice. He was there. He was, he was part of the plan. He was in agreement with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But this time, the story is different. What he made happen for others, God the Father was not going to make happen for him. Why? Because there was no other way. This was part of the agreement. That's why he prayed in the garden. Listen, I believe this. The true victory of the cross didn't happen after the resurrection. The true victory of the cross happened in the garden of Gethsemane. Because while he was in the garden, he prayed to the point to where he could say, not my will, but your will be done. He got out of that place of prayer, knowing what was ahead for him. Victory was only a matter of time. Now, there's times when God is silent, but there's never a time when God is absent. Why was Jesus forsaken at his greatest point of need? So that you and I would understand that he will never leave us, nor forsake us. Why was God's son forsaken? So you and I never will be. This is what this question is revealing to us. It has a lot to teach us. But we got to be careful. You have to be careful when you're going through seasons when God is silent, not to confuse that with God's absence. Because when God doesn't speak and God doesn't show up, but, but he just allows you just to continue to go through what you're going through because there was a purpose behind it, it can cause you to have a distorted view of God as if he's not good. Because even on the cross, Jesus was still God. And he's your God. It just helps us to identify with him that much more. Amen? Then come to music. I'm going to close. The last thing I want to share with you is this. The wonder of the human heart. This right here probably was the most mind-blowing because I didn't really think of this. Or any time before anyways. Now, when you would think with all the things that happened that day, now, what are the things that happened? Well, if you just read the story, you'll find out. With everybody that was there and all of the things that happened that particular day, what, what happened? Well, darkness covered the entire earth at 12 p.m. for three hours. If that's not enough to kind of get your attention... What will? But that wasn't the only thing that happened. Other stuff that happened was the veil was torn in two. The earth began to shake. Rocks began to split. Graves began to open. And you would think, you would think that after having seen all of those things, 
that those people that were there that witnessed that, that they would fall flat on their face, see their own guilt, repent of their sins, and commit their lives to Jesus and would never look back. You would think that's what would happen, right? That's how you would respond, wouldn't it? You absolutely, if you'd been there, you absolutely would have made it right, right then, right? You absolutely would have made the right decision. You would have known who Jesus was. To what I've read, the only person that was a part of that group that got it was one Roman soldier. And he said, surely, truly, this was the Son of God. The rest of them? What was their response? Look at this group of people. When some of those that were standing there heard this, they said, well, what'd they say? He's calling on Elijah. Then one man with sympathy in his heart immediately ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. Now notice this next group of people. Well, the rest of them said this sarcastically. Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. I mean, that's their attitude. After seeing all those things, instead of saying, truly, this is the Son of God, and we helped nail him there, and the truth is, until you and I see that we helped nail him there, we can't be saved. They weren't the only ones there that day. You and I were too. Because Jesus didn't just die for them. He died for us. He died for all. And their response was, let's see if Elijah will come and save them. Now, I thought to myself, I would ask these people, what else do you have to see? What else do you have to hear? What else do you have to experience before you would believe that this man was the Son of God? I would ask them that, but I'd have to ask you the same thing. What else do you need to see? What else do you need to hear? What else do you need to experience before you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And when I mean believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I mean to surrender your life wholeheartedly to Him, to take up your cross and follow Him, to stop being casual Christians, stop being lukewarm, apathetic, trying to find time to serve God, coming to church, being a, being a little bit of a, a, of a hassle for you and doing any kind of little bit of extra as a, we call it a sacrifice. This man's God, what would you not give up for him? And what could he ask of you that would be too great a price for you to pay if you believed? See, in America, we like our comforts, don't we? I'm one of them. We don't like to be 
inconvenienced. We don't like things to mess with their schedules. And we believe that we can approach God like we do our job, that we come to church on Sunday morning and clock in, and then after the altar calls made, we can clock out and we've done our spiritual duty. But if he's the son of God, if he's who he says that he is, he's Lord. But Jesus made that statement to some of those that were following. He said, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I've asked? Now, I'm not trying to make you feel condemned or, or, or any of that stuff, but, but I, I do want to challenge your commitment. It's good for us to challenge our commitment because, listen, a commitment that's not been tested is a commitment that can't be trusted. I used to think that I would be willing to die for Jesus until I had a chance. Peter said he'd be willing to die for Jesus. Would you die for Jesus? Would you? Peter said he would. When the Lord explained to him what was going to happen and how he was going to be crucified on the third day he was going to be raised from the dead, Peter said, listen, Lord, I'm willing to go with you to prison and even to death. And the Lord said, no, you're not. No. You think you are, but you're not. Peter said, yeah, I will. Yeah, I will. I'll follow you. He, see, it was just an emotional self-love. See, we don't understand love in America. Most love we talk about is not real love. It's self-love. It's like somebody saying, you know, Brian just got back from a trip. He said they caught 200 and some fish. I'll see him at the altar here. That's a lie, I know. But uh, it's like somebody say, I love fish. So what do they do? They go, they catch the fish. They kill the fish. They fillet the fish. They season the fish. They fry the fish. They consume the fish and say, mmm, that fish is good. You don't love the fish. You love what the fish does for you. You love how the fish tastes. You, 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 you love the benefits of the fish. You like catching the fish. Most of the love that we say from our lips is love is love, all right. It's just self-love. It's fish love. But God's calling us to a deeper kind of love. A self-sacrificing love. That's what the cross is about. It's a self-sacrificing love. And I sit here and I, and I look around the room and I wonder, those of you that are here, maybe you've put committing your life to Jesus off. My question is, how much longer do you think you can do that? What else do you need to hear? What, what else do you need to experience? What else do you need to see? How long do you think that you can just quench and resist and ignore the, the conviction 
of the Holy Spirit, you would think, like I said, you would think these people that saw and experienced what they saw and experienced on that day, that they wouldn't harden their hearts and reject the truth, would they? You'd think they'd be broken and devastated over it. You'd think they would be like, you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this to him. Not only did I do this, I, I, I agreed with it. I, I, I was an accomplice to it. I, I supported it. Even those that said nothing supported it. You've heard it said the only thing that it requires for, for evil to thrive is for good people to do nothing. God was silent. Some of the people were silent. But those that weren't were mocking. What about you? How much longer do you think you can put this off? How much longer do you think you can hold out? If that wasn't enough to convince them, you know the truth is? Even though you've heard the gospel a thousand times, it's never going to be enough for you. You know why? Because the more the truth is preached and the more the truth is heard and the more the truth is understood, the harder your heart has to get in order to reject it. And some people, your heart are getting harder and harder and harder. Because you keep rejecting and putting off and ignoring and trying to block out and pretend as if God's not speaking to you. And why would God speak to me in front of all these people? Can I just do it, you know, outside somewhere? Can I just do it in the car? Why would I have to respond in front of all these people? The only reason why you would respond in front of all these people is if the Lord said, come. You don't do it for me. You don't do it for the worship team. You don't do it for anybody else. But if the Lord says, come, I can promise you, you better come. Why? Because every time you turn away, your heart gets hard. And what makes you think that your heart won't become so hard one day that the voice of the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to hear it? And the drawing of the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to feel it. That's a scary, scary situation. And every time you put it off, the harder your heart gets. I'm talking to somebody this morning. Stand with me. With your head bowed and your eye closed, let me just ask you this. How many would say, I'm in a dark season in my life right now where I can't see God moving and I don't know the outcome of a situation and I'm just struggling trying to get around in the dark? How many would say, you know what? I need God. I'm so desperate I need God to speak to me. But every time I pray, it's almost like heaven's silent. And I need God to speak to me. Would you raise your hand and say that to me? Hammy would say, you know what? I'm in the greatest pain I've ever been in. Or I'm in the greatest point of need that I've ever been in. And, and I feel forsaken by people. I feel forsaken by those I love, by those I trust. I feel isolated. I feel alone. I feel abandoned. And I just need God to touch me. Would you shoot your hand up and say that to me? For those of you that God's dealing with in terms of where you stand with Him, if God is bringing conviction into your life today and He's speaking to you and He's saying, you know what? I come this morning to give you a word to speak to your heart and even though it pierces your heart, you've resisted it time and time again. And today God is saying, I want you to come. 
Would you shoot your hand up and say, that's me. I need to come and give my life to Jesus. I won't make you come. But if God's speaking to you, say, that's me. They're going to sing and they're going to play. And if God's speaking to you, if you're in a dark season, or His Spirit is drawing you and, and, and you're needing God to move on your behalf, or, or there's something in your life that, that you need an answer to prayer over, as they sing and as they play, I'm going to invite you to come. Respond to God. You'll never regret that. Well, how often should I respond? Every time.